Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Fact about my guest today. While he was waiting for them to call action on his first day of shooting MASH, he had no idea who his character was. Then something spontaneous happened and Hawkeye Pierce was born. Welcome, Alan Alda. A-OK. A-OK. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Alan Alda. Mr. Alda has earned international recognition as an actor, writer, and director. In addition to The Aviator, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, some of his other films include Bridge of Spies, Wonderlust, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Flirting with Disaster, Manhattan Murder Mystery, and The Band Played On, as well as The Seduction of Joe Tynan, which he wrote, and The Four Seasons, Sweet Liberty, A New Life, and Betsy's Wedding, all of which he wrote and directed. He became a household name when he was cast as Hawkeye Pierce on the long-running TV series MASH, for which he wrote and directed many of the episodes. He is a multiple Emmy Award winner, both for his acting and writing. Most recently for television, he starred as Uncle Pete in Louis C.K.'s groundbreaking web series Horace and Pete. Some of his Broadway credits include Art, QED, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and Jake's Women. He was nominated for the Tony Award three times. He hosted the award-winning series Scientific American Frontiers on PBS for 11 years. He has been dubbed the quintessential honorary woman, a feminist icon, for his activism on behalf of women's rights. He is a best-selling author. His most recent book is If I Understand You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? He is a husband, father, and grandfather. He is an activist and a passionate lover and spokesperson for the science community. Welcome, Alan Alda, to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I, I woke up during the middle of that. <laughs> Do you need some coffee now? The, I might go back again. Well, it must be kind of extraordinary because, as you know, having lived it, 
this is a very small, small percentage of the things that you've done over your lifetime. Well, it sure doesn't sound it. It sounds like it goes on forever. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> there was that Evelyn Wood reading dynamics course where you could speed read. I remember the commercial right. for. And Which is I wish... not a good idea when you read out loud. I love reading out loud. I've always loved reading and reading yeah. out loud. So one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast, I don't get to read out loud that much anymore. You read out loud surprisingly well because some people who are paid to read out loud professionally do a terrible job. There's a thing I think that happens when you read out loud, which is that you're not speaking spontaneously to another person. And I don't know whether this is true or not. I'm just making a speculation. But my guess is that the social parts of your brain aren't being enlisted in the communication. You're just processing the words on the paper, most of us, most of the time. And you read it almost as if you're talking to a person. Well, the thing is, and yeah. I've said this before, one of the criteria for coming on this show is the person I'm interviewing has achieved a really grand level of success in the thing they're passionate about, and they have to be kind. I was going to say, how do you audition people for whether or not they're nice people? Well, I have a kind meter. <laughs> and when you walk through the door to the podcast, it's yeah. like Willy Wonka. It's like it has to, the arrow has to go, yours yours was okay. It went to the middle. You're, we'll see not if by bad. the end we can, not well, you bad. you have to hit the hammer with all your might. Exactly. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Your birth name was? Alfonso D'Abruzzo. First of all, is there anyone in your life who still calls you that or any version of that name? Sometimes my wife calls me Fonzie. Was that your nickname as a kid? No, but that's a traditional <laughs> Italian abbreviation. So she's of, taken of, that on. Just as a gag. But no, I, when I, sometimes she calls me Allie, which is what I was called as a little boy. At what age did your name become Alan Alda? When I told my father in my teens, I guess around 15 or 16, that I wanted to be an actor, he said, well, you, you better use Alda. Which was which his was name already? made-up name. What was his, his name? His name was Alfonso D'Abruzzo also. And he took A.L. from Alfonso and D.A. from D'Abruzzo and made Alda. So that's I was thinking of keeping D'Abruzzo just out of uh, you respect know, and respect for for my real name and and the Italian part of my life, but I really saw it in the army. Nobody could pronounce it. Hey, D'Abruzzo, come over here. You know. So, do you think if you had started out now, do you think you would have kept? I mean, if you think of the Pacinos and the Scorseses and the De Niro's and a whole, yeah, um, they have much easier names. That's it. So for, it wasn't for just Americans. You it know? wasn't specifically the Italian sound to it as much as no one could say it the right yeah, way. Yeah, that was. If I had an easier to pronounce name, I think I would have kept it. It meant a lot to me, and also at that time there were other actors who were beginning to use real. Ethnic names. Did you know your grandparents growing up? Yeah, sure. So were you, can you tell me a little bit about growing up a uh, Debruzzo? Well, I was half Irish. And my, on the Irish side, my grandmother was a little crazy. That, and, that was her name? <laughs> how, do, no, how do you say that in Irish? No, her, her husband called her fat. That, and she, she took it. Okay. <laughs> hey, hey, fat, to get me a beer. 
Oh, my God, that makes me... Yeah, and she used to hit him with her purse. Okay, so, so she found a way to, to well, get back Well, she just at did him. it for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember this? Are you seeing this no, in your I mind's saw it, eye? No, I saw it. I was pulling up to pick them up on a street corner once, and there she was banging her purse on his head. And he must have said something she didn't like. So my grandfather on the Italian side was uh, Antonio, a little guy who never said much. Okay. He told me that when I was a boy, he told me that f 450 years earlier, the family had come from Spain, which would have put it around 1492. So my guess is the family was Jewish because yeah. that was the, uh, the year of the expulsion. And I'm imagining they went to Naples because that was also owned by Spain at the time. But then two years later, Naples kicked out the Jews as Spain had done. So they probably went north to where the Abruzzo region is. And then when things calmed down, maybe that's when they came down to Sant'Agata dei Gotti near Naples. But at that point, their name would, would say from Abruzzo. Sure. Abruzzo. But the other indication that I might be Jewish is that uh, in Italy, if you're named after a region or a town, the odds are two to one that you're Jewish because they would just come in and take the name of the region. Interesting. Do you speak Italian? No, but I speak Yiddish. You <laughs> and that's the other way they know. If yeah, you can that's speak the, if Yiddish. You, if you're born speaking Yiddish, it's almost sure <laughs> that you're Jewish. But that's not a really good litmus yeah. test. Yeah, there isn't enough I, Yiddish spoken anymore. I can get by a little bit in Italian. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure you can order in a restaurant really well. So somehow your father, who grew up with Italian immigrant parents, yeah. became a burlesque star. He, he was, yeah, he was actually known as one of the best straight men in burlesque. And, and he was a singer. And where did he meet your mom? I have no idea. Unfortunately, she was shortly after they married, she began to get the symptoms of schizophrenia, paranoia, and all my life she was mentally ill. Was she in hospitals? Did she live with she you? She was in a hospital when I was about 18. But until then, you were living with your mom who yeah. was schizophrenic? Yeah. And was she having episodes? Oh, yeah, all the time. Wow. And I think it benefited me a little bit because I had to observe her very carefully from the time I was young. I remember when I was six, her turning to me with a depressed, anxious look on her face, and I knew something was wrong. I was six. Probably from at least that time, I had to read her face, read her emotions to find out if what she was telling me was reality or just her reality. So, so you, that was helpful as an actor and as a writer. Oh, my God. Alan, I am so sorry. Oh, that's all right. Everything <laughs> so, turned out okay. It really did. Yeah. It really did. How I remarkable. I mean, it might, be, it might be an example of enough stress helps you out if it's not too much for you. Yeah. I think everybody comes in with a different level of, uh, of an ability to accept stress. It's like working out, I guess. I can only tell you about working out from what I've read. I've seen movies where people work out, yeah, and very, I've read books. It seems amazing. Amazing. Not for me. Do. But apparently, if you push yourself just past your regular limit or some kind of limit, I don't know what's, I don't know what they call it. Well, we don't know you're, because we don't do it. We're not in that yeah, club. You're not falling down dead limit. 
<laughs> if you just go past that. That's a that, good place to stop. Yeah. Just before. <laughs> yes, it's a really good place. Can you lower that, can you lower that treadmill now just a little bit because <laughs> yeah. I'm actually about to die? Yeah. I, that just kind of stress may have helped me out. I don't know. Were you incredibly worried or sensitive to the possibility that you might have inherited some? You know, somebody asked me that in an interview, and yeah, I said, it no. wasn't me? I said, no. <laughs> so, are you sure it wasn't just a minute said, ago? I, I, no, I do realize this is an interview. <laughs> you know where you are? Yeah. I can tell by the microphone. Yes, and the headphones. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I, somebody else interviewed me, said, and I said, no. And he said, but it's in your book. I said, well, then, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I forgot. I let forgot. me finish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me finish. I'm not done. So. I, I guess I, I, I had a, a worry once. You know, it wasn't a severe worry. I think everybody who has a relative who's not well mentally wonders if it, if they're going to get it too, especially because yes. her mother was not too well off either. Obviously, now we live in a world where people can talk more freely about this stuff. I can oh, imagine when you were growing up, everything nobody, was quite hush-hush. My, my father and I both suffered from her illness, and neither one of us talked about it. Together, even. Yeah. Not wow. to each other. Wow. Yeah. Well, your father's story is kind of fascinating because he starts out sort of in this traditional touring the country in burlesque, yeah. and then he became a major movie star. Right off the bat. His first movie was playing George Gershwin in the film biography of Gershwin. An international stardom, yeah, right? Yeah, oh, his movie was shown all over the world. And then the studio put him in crappy movies, and Afterwards. he disappeared again for seven mm. years. And then played Sky Masterson and Guys and Dolls on, on Broadway. Broadway. So and when got you're... a Tony. I mean, he was. That's right. And then he disappeared again. What a great way to see the reality of what a career looks like yeah. for you from a yeah. very young age. And you still decided to do it. Well, you don't believe it's going to happen to you. When you're young, you don't think you're going to die. Mm. You don't think you're going to get creaky and cranky. And you sure don't think you're not going to be a success at your chosen profession. Look at all the stunks out there. How come? Surely they're waiting for me. <laughs> Stunks Agency. Yes. Hello? Hello? Stunks and Company. <laughs> I'm so excited because I wanted to open up an agency of some sort. Well, now you got a name. Totally. They always said the name will come. Yeah. Don't worry. If you sit and just be mindful and meditate. Stunks, Stunks Incorporated. I had an agent who was starting a, his own agency. And he said, I'm trying to think of a name. What should I call it? And he kept wanting to call it after the agents, like great agencies, oh, great oh, agents or oh, something like that. So why don't you call it after the talent? Maybe you'll get more attention. And when did you meet your beautiful bride of uh, all these many years? 60 years. We were just married 60 years. Mazel tov. Thank you. A, a Shainam Dunk. A Shainam Badunk. Shainam Dunk Agency. <laughs> now you're talking. This is good. <laughs> we're on to it. So we met through a friend who was a musician who said to me, come watch and listen to chamber music at my apartment one night. And there was Arlene. And I was very shy. And all I, she was very attractive to me uh, and to probably everybody else in the room. And all I had the nerve to say was, oh, you were very good. You had her at, oh, you were very good. I had her at, oh. <laughs> she was a sucker. Yeah. A sucker for the uh. But we didn't meet again for a couple of months. So the next time we met was at dinner at this same mutual friend's apartment. And it was a table full of people. And Arlene kept laughing at my jokes, which I thought was extremely attractive. The best. 
And the woman who was the hostess had made a rum cake for dessert, and she had it cooling on top of an old Philco refrigerator, which shook as it worked. And during dinner, it shook so much the cake slid off the refrigerator and hit the kitchen floor. And Arlene and I were the only two people that got up with spoons and ate it off the floor. And that became the rum floor cake became the traditional anniversary. And it turns out flirting over food is the way to really cement things. That's So all these websites, you know, for meeting people and dating. Sure. Totally useless. Just toss a rum cake on the floor and see who bites. (laughs) Could you imagine? Before I got regular work as an actor... In between acting jobs, I took all kinds of work. I was a cab driver and a doorman. I was a clown at the openings of gas stations. And once at the opening of a store that sold chicken parts, raw chicken parts. If you're going to sell raw chicken parts, you ought to have a clown out front. (laughs) You know, my mother always said, if if I tell you one thing, Alana... Yeah, it's or that. go down to the store from where the clown is and buy a chicken part. I didn't know that they had clowns at openings of gas stations. That's I kind didn't of either, and then I found out why they don't, because the kids from the neighborhood, I was giving out balloons, and they all started grabbing my balloons. I had to climb up a lamppost to get away from them. I'm so glad you don't have to still do that. Well, I just came from that. You, <laughs> you have a little red on your nose. I I'll Actually, give you a little you know, cold cream. It's worse than that. When I did that, I didn't know you were supposed to put a foundation on before you put clown makeup on. Uh-huh. So I just painted red, big red lips, mm-hmm. big white eyes, and went out in the sun, danced in the street for six hours. And then at the end of the day, I washed it off and went home on the subway with big red lips and big white eyes because the sun had burned sunburn on the rest of my face. When I met you doing Jake's Women, you had already done MASH. You were offered the part. So you had a meeting with whom to decide if you were going to do That was an interesting uh, question because I got the script while I was in the Utah State Prison. Again? Yeah. <laughs> you, got, you, you were allowed one phone call. You're allowed one script. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we not back in vaudeville? I don't understand. I thought we were. Would anyone else think we're you as funny this- as I think we are? <laughs> this is my problem. I'm my best audience. I was making a movie in the Utah State Prison okay. where they, uh, we, we had 3,000 inmates who are extras. Are you serious? Yeah, and it's so surprising. Not a single one of them was guilty. They all came up to me and told me how they were innocent. Listen, I have to tell you something. You have to help me. Well, yeah, I didn't yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, I didn't do it. But if you need to kill somebody, here's how you do it. So I got the That's script to for the pilot of MASH, and I thought it was great. And I said to Arlene on the phone, this is wonderful, but I can't do it because it has to be shot in California, and we live in New Jersey. And you had not done that before, gone away for long stretches of well, time. Well, no, I said this could run a year. Could you imagine? <laughs> yeah, it ran 11. <laughs> a, a day later, she called me back and said, look, if it's so good, maybe we can solve the problem with travel. So when we did it, finally, I'd, I would fly home every Every weekend or every time I had a couple of days off. So you were exhausted but but employed. I was on jet lag most of the time. It was a nice little buzz. But I was in a Utah prison until until the day before rehearsal for MASH. Really? So it all happened that quickly? Yeah. So I said, look, I have to talk to you about this because I don't want to do a television show that makes war look like a lot of laughs. Mm Mm-hmm. There had been a number of shows like that. Hogan's Heroes or sort of other... McHale's Navy. Navy. It was as if the war was 
happening someplace else or not happening at all. People were just having fun service comedy routines to go through. So I, I wanted to have a conversation with them, and they and we had it at one o'clock in the morning in a coffee shop in Beverly Hills. And the next day we started rehearsing. And so you start shooting, and it sounds like you've had ten seconds with this script. That yeah. ended up being a character that you played for such a long time. Yeah. Was there a rehearsal? Ten, ten days of rehearsal. Okay. But even after ten days, I was standing waiting for the first shot to begin, which was just me leaving the tin building on the compound and walking across the compound, a silent shot. And I thought to myself, I don't know who this guy is. I don't, I don't see myself as this guy yet. And I hear out, in the compound, quiet on the set. And I'm thinking, how am I going to become this guy? I got about five seconds. You hear the clapperboard and the director calls action. I open the door, walk out, and there's a nurse walking toward me, an extra. And I just reach out and grab her around the waist and pull her to me and give her a hug. And I think, I'm Hawkeye. That wasn't so hard. (laughs) Wow. What I do is, at a certain point when my brain is ready, I just leap into it. You know, I don't, I don't, I can't think my way into it. It's too uh, intellectual. I can't get it from a description. And while I'm doing it, I don't like to describe it. People are always asking me to talk about the character. Your process or your, right. If I put it into words, then it becomes mechanical. It just becomes those words. A person is more than a paragraph. That's incredible. And so you were kind of off. Like something happened in that moment where there was a fusion of Alan and and Hawkeye. Yeah. yeah, I find, I don't know about you, but I find if you know sort of intuitively something about the character, no matter how small it is, and you just leap into that and do it, you begin to connect all the other parts of the character to the parts of you that are the same or similar. I think there's an awful lot of different kinds of people in me. You know, it's funny. Julianne Moore, the actress, was just sitting in that chair where you are, and she was saying that she'll just be in conversation with you until really the moment before Mm. she starts to shoot. And that can be whether she's playing, you know, someone who's suffering from Alzheimer's, whatever the part is, because it helps her feel like herself, Mm. as opposed to, I'm Julianne Moore, and now I'm doing this character. Yeah, that's good. We, We often did that on MASH. Not just before the clapper, after the clapper, even before the first line. And it might look undisciplined, but it's really establishing the connection that you feed off of when you're playing the scene. You still connect it only with the words of the scene. One of the other things I really remembered, and I've I've told this story often, the thing that I took away among many things, because you were such an uh, a beautiful teacher for me. This was my first show. I was, you know, really young. Started as an understudy in that play, which um, some people don't want to do. I loved it. I loved getting to rehearse. Yeah, I I was an understudy too. Never wanted to go on. I used to pay the people I was understudying, please, (laughs) like whatever, whatever. Don't ever miss a show. But did you have the feeling I had? I, I understudied an actor called Don Murray when I was 19. And I loved sitting in the audience watching him play my part. (laughs) It was my part, and I thought, boy, he doesn't get this at all. 
you know. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, was... I've done my best to teach Kate Burton what yeah. she should be doing, but clearly, I mean, she's got no, you know, theatrical blood, clearly. <laughs> I have no problem with taking on blocking that's already been created, taking on even a rhythm to a line, because mm. it's still mine. Like, in some ways, I appreciate it. Someone's giving me the outline for a paint-by-number yeah. thing. I'm still going to color it in. Yeah. There's only... Alana's going to do it. Um, But for my first Broadway show, it was actually a great way to enter. So when you took over the part, did you make it totally yours? You know what? I came on stage and I saw your face. And I think the first thing I had to do was I was doing a crossword puzzle. And I come out and I just say, Jake, what was a four-letter word for something was the line. And you know what? I just looked at you. And I loved you. And and it was just nothing could be easier because I was playing a scene with someone that I loved the way Julie would have loved Jake in that play. Well, that's very sweet. Thank you. But the thing I wanted to tell you, and this is such a long-winded thing, but I remember— No, keep it up. It's fine. (laughs) And then I'll tell you when else you were amazing. Exactly. You were very famous, and you were the first person I had worked with who was a bona fide celebrity actor. And— You often tried to sneak out the back door when you could Mm -hmm. and not go out the stage door. But on occasion, for whatever reason, you went out the stage door. And I will never forget, as everyone was standing there with their playbills wanting us to sign them, that they would ask for your autograph. And I remember the first time I was standing next to you, I heard you ask this young woman who was asking for your autograph if you could have hers. And she was so thrown by that interaction She didn't understand what was happening. And she kept saying, no, 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 I'd like your autograph. And you said, I know, and I would like yours. I have no memories. You don't? Are you sure it was me? Wait, are you Alan Arkin? That's it. (laughs) Let's start again. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Alan Arkin. Hi. I was. (laughs) (laughs) When did you realize that you could use your voice as a person who was on television playing a fictional character to someone who could use it for the power of attempting to change minds or illuminate things that were important to you. And how did that start for you? Around the end of the first year of MASH or the second year, I can't, maybe the end of the first year, somebody called me up and asked if I wanted to help get the uh, Equal Rights Amendment ratified it had been ratified in one swoop in one or two years by, I think, almost 35 states. And they st- they needed three more, I think. And they never got three more. But for 10 years, I campaigned for it. I went around to state legislatures, which was a horrible experience. I'm sure. Some of the stories I got from mixing with people who would promise to... Uh, to vote for it and tell you all the reasons why it was a good idea and then read from the Bible against it on the floor of their Senate. It was it was amazing. And the, the story I'll never forget is this one guy who told a woman who was uh, lobbying for the Equal Rights and for the Equal Rights Amendment. He said, all right, I'll give you my vote if you come up to my hotel room. Unbelievable. Yeah. I just started a company called the Alda Communication Company. The acronym is ACT. Uh-huh. You got to go like that. ACT. Okay. I hate that this is audio. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag ACT. Yes. Yeah. So uh, our first project is um, Women in Business, where surprisingly, after 
after so much of the culture changed uh, in the in the effort to pass the Equal Rights Amendment and during that whole wave of feminism, women are still interrupted at the conference table. They're still ignored. They're still having things explained to them as if they're children. Women are treated so badly they lose confidence. What we do is, this might interest you, we start with improvisation. Not comedy improvisation, but Viola Spolin's mm -hmm. work. Did you ever do that? Yes, I did, with Paul Sills and yeah. that whole, yeah. yes, absolutely. That was part of my theater training, all yeah. those games. That's the are... only training I ever had. I do recommend theater training for actors, but it shouldn't exclude improvisation, serious improvisation, because it helps you do what we were talking about before. It helps you relate. That's why we teach it to scientists and doctors and now people in corporations, because relating is everything. Mm -hmm. You can't communicate with somebody unless you read their face and know what they're thinking and feeling while you're talking to them, because if they're not getting it, it doesn't matter what you say to them. Right. And it also changes the way you communicate with them. If you're observing them, you're taking them in, you open up and they open up. And there's something happening between you that wasn't happening when it was just an exchange of words. You know, it's so funny. The word mindfulness has become a very popular yeah. word now in our yeah. community. And I feel like when I read about you or, or think about you, that you have been living mindfulness. Well, sometimes deliberately. I mean, I started to figure that out in one of the books I wrote. That was a good idea. Yeah. It was a good way to notice the life you were living. What's the point of living it if you don't notice it? And what's the point of talking to somebody if you don't notice them? And the, the amazing thing is that I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. And, and talking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Right. I do a lot of that. But I've also been uh, reading a lot of research about it. And things change when you... Let the other person be there for you. Let the other person in. I don't think you're really listening unless you're willing to be changed by the other person. It's what we go through on the stage. If you come in to a scene determined to do the scene the way you figured out how you're going to do it, regardless of what I do, it's not going to be a very good scene. And the same goes on my end. However you come in, that's what I'm working with. And I got to see it and hear it and let myself respond to it without thinking, just openly respond. That's an improvisational moment. Right. That makes the acting experience creative and not just interpretive. I remember reading that when you were doing MASH, sort of at the height of that show's success, people would write you not just fan letters or letters telling you about all sorts of things in their life, but people who were worried about taking their own lives were yeah, writing to you. Yeah, that scared me when I started getting notes like of that. Of course. At first, I thought, I got to wait. I can't answer this right away. I have to think of a good answer. And then I realized that sometimes a couple of weeks have gone by and the person might have killed themselves right, by now. So right. that, that, that wasn't going to work. Not the best response. No, no. And then I didn't want to dash off an answer that was not well thought out. So I made a form letter mm -hmm. that sounded very personal, but that included suicide hotline in their neighborhood. And... It was ironic, I thought, that here I am sending form letters to people who are thinking of killing themselves. But I made it as personal as I could. But the objective was to get it out as fast as possible and try to be helpful to them, mainly with the, uh, you know, a word of encouragement, but mainly uh, the hotline number. 
during MASH, you became a really prolific writer of episodes, and you directed them. Was that a pranky kind of set? Yes, it was. There were a lot of pranks. During an operating scene, (laughs) everyone was in danger of having medical instruments clipped to your surgical gown while you were acting. You'd turn around to be two pounds of surgery on your back. And the first time I directed an episode of MASH, it involved a picnic scene with 80 people on camera. And I think I had four or five cameras shooting at once. So it was a real big production. And I had to get the last shot as people were being pulled into a mud pit uh, on a tug of war. And the sun was setting behind a mountain. They got pulled in and they pulled themselves out during the shot and walked away just as the sun went behind the mountain. So there was magic. Yeah, and it was an automatic fade out. By God. <laughs> yeah. Compliments right. of God. Yeah. I feel like you've always been someone who says yes and then figures out yeah, how to do I it. Yeah, I don't, you know, that seemed, and I, that's like improvisation. I think when you improvise enough, you get a certain amount of confidence and you think, if I have the basic amount to accomplish this, doesn't have to be perfect. And lately I've been saying, I've been telling people I work with, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be great. And then some of them say, could you explain that? And I say, no, I can't explain that. That sounds really easy. Yeah. It's kind of Zen-like. Yeah. Well, I can't not talk about Horace and Pete because- Oh, I love that. That was brilliant casting. That's one of the most painful shows I've ever seen. Isn't it amazing? It's it's so- It's funny, but it's truly tragic. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it deals He's with- He's a wonderful writer. And Lou, Lou, we're talking about Louis C.K. We are C. talking K. about Louis C.K. It's brutal and funny. And in some ways, it reminded me of a little bit of All in the Family. Like there's ways in which certain characters harken back to this very- like pure writing, and it was mm-hmm. so simple and complicated at the same time. But this was a character I've never seen you play on film before. Yeah. And I thought, wow, you are still having so much fun. I know. Right? Like to reinvent yourself at this point yeah. in your career. And that was the same thing as Hawkeye, you know. I, you didn't Louis, know what was going to happen. No, Louis said, uh, so you'd like to play? I saw the script. I said, I'd like to play this. And he said, uh, you know, you don't seem like the guy. I said, well, I think I, I can do it. He said, well, if you think you can do it, okay, great. And it was a question of jumping into it and not imposing an idea on it, not saying this is a certain kind of guy. I found him and me. I mean, I am him. Some parts of me are him. And he is. He's one of the world's worst people. Somebody on Twitter described him very well. I think it had to do with... Vulnerable. Yes. Heartbreakingly vulnerable. And what an amazing way to look at that character. Yeah. That that behavior could only come out of someone who suffered. Suffering, yeah. Yeah. And and rough on everybody else. But you see the suffering. And you see the suffering not because I'm so great, but you see the suffering because it's in the writing. What are you passionate about right now? What is exciting to you right now in your life? I love acting, Mm -hmm. and I love writing. I love, I really do enjoy the experience. It's an an ecstasy about acting that I really love. But since I did Horace and Pete, I haven't seen anything that makes me want to do it. Because I don't, that was such a rich experience. I don't want to just get up and act just for the, I don't have to, thank God. But what I'm really passionate about is, communication now 
and I and I act. I take a time off to act or or write. I think the big question that most of us who grew up in sort of the Judeo Christian world and philosophy of thinking about life and death are very envious of Buddhists or people who have a very fluid relationship to what happens after we go. I'm but, personally being buried in the swimming pool. I, I can afford that. That's nice. Yeah. Well, you, I you don't know. want to go with the riffraff. The, the celebrity, ocean. the yeah. celebrity swimming pool. I guess my point is that there are people who believe in reincarnation. Uh-huh. There are people who believe, right, that they've been here many times, yeah. that they're doing it this time this way, and then they've done it before in other ways and will right. do it in different ways. And and there are people like my mother, you know, who grew up in a very ashes to ashes, dust to dust, when you, yeah. you live your life and then you die. So this is a long way of asking you in all of your, you've had near-death experiences, you've written about them, you've had a lot of ways to artistically express the things you think about and worry about or are scared of or excited about. Are you scared of dying? No, not anymore. Were you? I didn't want to die. I don't want you to either. No. That's why you're but here. No one I, dies in this podcast booth. <laughs> I, if I died, I wanted to die in my sleep so I wouldn't notice it. But yeah. only if I died, you know. And I nearly died 13 or 14 years ago in Chile. And I was surprised to see that I, I wasn't bothered by the prospect that when they put me under the anesthesia, I might not wake up. I just wanted to take care of business. I wanted a note to go to my wife. And Did you write a note? Well, I dictated a note to the guy who was producing the TV show that we were doing in Chile. So I dictated this note that wasn't very inspiring. It didn't have many famous last words in it. But it didn't matter because he lost the note. So she... <laughs> She Thank never, God you didn't die that time. Yeah, because I'm, I'm trying to get some better last words. Yes, I have a yes. chance. But I was so glad when I woke up alive that I really got more of a sense of what you were talking about before of being mindful and just, just noticing. I mean, mindful is a fancy way to say it. Just Just notice life and notice the people you're with. And when you start to do that, you realize there are so many layers of noticing. You know, I mean, I, if I'm not paying that much attention to you but talking to you, I think I'm paying attention. And then if I start to say, but do I really know what color her eyes are? What color is her hair? What, what, what shape are those eyeglasses? What, what's, what, what's the fabric on the shirt? There's all kinds of stuff that I was taking for granted, just taking as a general gestalt. Mm -hmm. But when I start to really notice those details, I open up to you more. I think I've learned something really important and fundamental in the last 25 or even 50 years, if you go back to the beginning when I started understanding improvisation. It's fundamental to how we can get along as people. And and become who we want to be. There's one story I remember. I think it might have been from your first book. You'll be able to tell me. But it really, I think, brought me so much joy because it's sort of distilled down to a very fundamental core what it is to love and to be remembered. And it was a story about Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis. Uh And uh, 
I think you had done a movie with them in your early days. And I, I did a play with them and then a movie. Do you yeah. remember this story about... I don't know. About, I'll, I'll tell you. Ozzie Davis talking to you about sweet potato pie. Yes. yes. Do you mind just telling the story? They, both of them, Ozzie and Ruby, together. In the, in the movie version of the play was Pearly Victorious. That's right. That's before right. it was made into a musical. And I had to eat eat some sweet potato pie in, in, in a scene. And Ozzie and Ruby said, with this... Beautiful smile on their faces. He said, now, you know how to eat sweet potato pie? He said, no, how to eat sweet potato pie? He said, you take a bite and you go like this. Mm, mm, mm. And I did it in the movie. And, uh, and I talked about that when Ossie died and I spoke at his funeral. It was, those... it was a wonderful thing because it was a wordless introduction into their life and an invitation and an acceptance into their life, which was a lovely thing, but it was all in those three tones, you know. All right, Alan, I'm going to do it. This is how I feel having had you on my podcast. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank being you. here this today. Was fun. Oh, it was great. What a great reunion. Yeah. I hope you'll come back. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.